good morning to you. And if you would, uh, across all of our locations, would you please put your hands together and make some noise for our Midtown campus, which launched this morning. We, uh, man, we're so uh, excited for you guys. I've been getting text messages all morning, uh, pictures of the Midtown gathering. And uh, man, we've been praying and praying uh, for the relaunch of our Midtown campus for uh, over a year. And so it's so exciting that uh, the day has finally come. And uh, this last week I was talking to uh, campus pastor Alex Diaz and just like, man, hey man, how you feeling about it? And he's like, hey, if you just pray that like we'd have good weather. So, you know, sorry about that, uh, Alex, like we tried. All right. But, uh, but man, I just want to thank uh, if especially those of you at the Midtown campus that showed up at the crack of dawn today uh, to set up like they're a portable church meeting in another location. Man, we just have so much respect for you. Thank you so much for showing up early so that way others could have a great experience. And if this is your first time to be with us, like you're joining us at the Midtown campus, you're in great hands with that whole team there and uh, welcome to the family. Uh, we're just so happy to have you with us. Yeah, we can give them up for one more time. And uh, want to just go ahead and say hello to our other gatherings as well, all of our locations around the city. If you're joining us online, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to finish out Matthew chapter 5 today. we got a lot of ground to cover, uh, very little time to do it. Uh, we have been in this uh, series since the beginning of the year uh, where we've just been walking our way through line by line. Uh, one of the greatest sermons ever preached, like of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's recorded in Matthew chapters five through seven. And it's really important to understand like what Jesus is doing and uh, what he's not doing. Like what he is saying and what he's not saying. Because as we've already seen, if you've been with us, the Sermon on the Mount is incredible. Like it's absolutely brilliant, but it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy to understand all the time. In fact, many of the times we can misunderstand it or misapply it. Many people do. And it's also like not easy to do. Uh, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that Jesus uses this teaching tool that a lot of rabbis would use where he would say, hey, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And it's as if he's like raising the bar uh, at a really high, almost even unreasonable level. Like we're looking at that going, Jesus, there's no way that I'm ever going to meet that standard. So it's important to understand like, what Jesus is doing. Jesus is describing his kingdom. Jesus is helping us to see life through the lens of the kingdom of God. And so he says like, hey, uh, here's how you uh, see it. Now, let me help you see it a different way. And he's slapping a set of kingdom lenses over that and flipping everything upside down, or we've said sort of right side up. And he's going, this is what the kingdom of God should be like and would be like, and ultimately will one day be like when Jesus returns to make all things new. I love how what one scholar puts it when he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, really, uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is just one great grand exposition on the greatest commandment. And the greatest commandment, as many of you may, may know, is love God, love people. And Jesus is taking an extended amount of time to say, hey, here's what this looks like in real life. Now, please understand, the Sermon on the Mount is not do all these things and you'll be saved. Because we know that we are saved by grace through faith through the finished work of Jesus alone. It's also not like, hey, if you do this, like you'll be a super Christian and you'll just earn the favor of your heavenly father because we know that God has already demonstrated his great love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so where, where does the Sermon on the Mount fit in? The Sermon on the Mount is, hey, strive to live this way. 
by the help of the Holy Spirit, strive to live this way. And if we could manage to do it, like if every single person on the planet could live out the Sermon on the Mount, we would do away with division and broken relationships and hurt and pain of all kinds if we could strive to live it out. All right, so uh, what Jesus is, uh, by way of review, a couple weeks ago, we said that Jesus kind of leaves us with this incredible metaphor where he said, as followers of Christ, I want you to be salt and light. I want you to be preservatives of the kingdom and I want you to radiate the, life, the light of Jesus to the rest of the world. And uh, the way that we said it for our church in this new year is that um, if we're part of like the Traders Point family, like we just wanna change the gravity of whatever room we're in and just make that our personal challenge, salt and light. Like a salt and light at work, salt and light in our community, just change the gravity of the room. Now, uh, last week and this week, as we wrap up chapter five, Jesus is gonna give six case studies uh, for how to change the gravity in the room by talking about subjects that all of us wrestle with to some degree. Now, last week, if you were with us, Jesus talked about two really, really easy ones. You obviously weren't here last week, all right? He, he talked about anger and lust, all right? And then now this week, to wrap up chapter five, he's uh, gonna talk about uh, divorce, dishonesty, revenge, and loving enemies, all right? So just some more softballs, all right? And uh, we're gonna play another round of the board game operation, all right? There, there's, uh, and here's one of the things that I learned just as I was studying this this last week. First of all, I just want you to know that like, I, I'm right there in the thick of it with everyone. Like as I was studying this this last week, God brought some things to the surface in my own heart that I didn't even realize were issues or stuff that like I thought that I had dealt with in my past and God was tapping me on the shoulder going, no, actually you haven't dealt with it. And so I just want you to know I'm like right there on the mat with everyone. Let's just take it line by line. I'm going to try to read and explain. The first part of this is really, really dense. And so I've got to flex some teaching muscles here. I just want you all to hang with me. So if you could uh, just say, uh, we're with you. All right, so not too convincing, but I'll, I'll take it, all right? So he says this, he goes, hey, you have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. Now, I want you to notice these little quotes. Jesus is once again referring to Old Testament law. And he's like, hey, you have heard it said, and he's getting ready to go, but I say to you. So this is likely um, a sentence that uh, we're not real familiar with because it comes out of a random line uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one, this is Mosaic law. And so understand Moses was sort of the leader at the time. And what was happening uh, during the days of Moses is that divorce had become really chaotic, messy, and grossly unfair to women in particular. Uh, Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy says it this way. He goes, in the Jewish society of Jesus' day, as for most times and places in human history, the consequences of divorce were devastating for the woman. Except for some highly unlikely circumstances, her life was simply ruined. No harm was done to the man by contrast, except from time to time, a small financial loss and perhaps bitter relationships with the ex-wife's family members. So nothing is new. All right. So what we see here is that Moses comes along and uh, if you understand the full teaching of marriage and divorce, like in the book of Genesis, it says that God has brought a man and a woman together to become one flesh. So let, let man not separate what God has brought together. So we know that God um, despises divorce. He doesn't despise divorced people. That is so important to understand. You know who else usually despises divorce is anybody who's ever been through a divorce or anybody that's ever been touched by a divorce, which would just about be every single person listening to this. It is destructive and damaging to, uh, and, uh, and disruptive to all of our lives. 
But what was happening is that Moses is saying, hey, listen, because we live in a broken society, we know that divorce, like all divorce is, uh, is not always, um, uh, it's, it's inevitable, it's going to happen. But we wanna uh, make sure that especially within this context, that women aren't being mistreated. Well, what's he talking about? He said, hey, if you are speaking to the men primarily, and it could go both ways, but he's speaking to the men. He says, hey, if you're going to divorce your wife, you need to give her a document that says she's free to marry again. What's that all about? Basically, it was a document saying she hasn't done anything immoral. She hasn't done anything wrong. So that way she could go and remarry again. Because if she didn't have that document, people could make up whatever story they wanted about her and often they would. And it, it could ruin her life and she could end up on the street, quite possibly even in a life of prostitution. I'm reminded of, uh, you remember when uh, in the Christmas narrative, when the angel came to Joseph and he tells Joseph that his fiance Mary is, is pregnant. And it's, what did Joseph do? Joseph's first inclination was to divorce her quietly because he didn't want to ruin Mary's life. See, this is what was happening. Also, there was something going on in the ancient Near East under Babylonian law. A man could divorce his wife and then change his mind within five years and say, well, you know, I, I, I just decided that I've kind of grown out of love with you. And he divorces her. She hadn't done anything wrong. And then five years later, he would like reclaim her as if she was property. And Moses is addressing that in Deuteronomy 24. And he's saying, that is not okay. And the specific wording of the law said this, a man can divorce his wife if she has done something indecent. And in Jesus' day, there was this like raging debate over that phrase, something indecent. Uh, in Hebrew, it was uh, translated, ervat devar. And most rabbis in the past will said, well, that just means like adultery. That means like an extramarital affair. But a generation before Jesus, there's this rock star rabbi by the name of Hillel who comes along and he changes the meaning. And he says, something indecent can mean like, for any reason at all. Like if you just don't wanna be married to her anymore, Ervat Debar, and it, and it got ridiculous. It got to the place where it was like, if she burned your supper, Ervat Debar. It was like, that's indecent to me, so I'm gonna divorce you. That, that can mean like, uh, hey, we've just grown apart or you've lost that love and feeling, right? And this view, somebody laughed, all right, so, so, this view, of that, that, uh, this view of this took off. And by Jesus' day, everybody was interpreting Deuteronomy 24 uh, as only men could divorce women, which was not what Moses was saying. And they didn't have to go to court or prove their case or have any you know, legitimate reason. It's just like on a whim, like, um, I, I don't wanna be married to you anymore. And this put the women at incredible risk. And Jesus isn't cool with any of that. And this is what Jesus is addressing. He is weighing in on the debate popularized by Hillel over Ervat Devar. That's what's going on. So look at what he says in verse 32. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, and then he says, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Uh, in other words, Jesus is saying, I know the popular interpretation right now is for any reason at all, but I'm telling you that that's not the right way to interpret Deuteronomy 24. So what is he saying? Well, uh, if we don't understand what's going on in this passage, this unfortunately is often misapplied today. I think many times, I think it's important to understand, Jesus is not giving a full discourse on divorce and remarriage here. He actually will address it later in Matthew chapter 19, expands upon it a little bit more. And if we're not, if we don't understand that at a surface level reading of this in English, 
It sounds like Jesus is saying, you can get divorced if your spouse has an affair and that even then all remarriage is adultery. And that's a tough pill to swallow. I've had a lot of very hurting, broken people in my office over the years that have experienced maybe an unwanted divorce or they've gone through something very painful and they feel like they'll be labeled for the rest of their life. I think it's important to understand that Jesus is not saying that adultery requires divorce. Many marriages work through it and survive it. And that's a beautiful thing. He's also not saying that a second marriage, even if it follows a messy, painful, illegitimate divorce should be seen as permanently adulterous. Honestly, I think that's cruel and it runs counter to the redemption that Jesus died on a cross for us to have. New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg is really helpful here. He says in the Greek, Jesus does not use the noun adulterous, but the verb makes her commit adultery. Well, what's that mean? Well, we oftentimes hear the word adultery and we automatically think that all that means is extramarital affair. Jesus expands it to say, if you break the covenant without any legitimate reason. So in Jesus' mind, he's like, hey, if you go back on this covenant that you've made, then you've committed adultery, so to speak, even though you haven't had an extramarital affair and you're causing her to do the same. And so he's speaking to the men in particular here. And he's basically uh, urging them in the day, and I'm not saying it's men exclusively because this can go both ways, but specifically in Jesus' day, and we see this a lot today, Jesus is actually raising the bar for the men. And I'm re- I recall something that Jesus said to husbands, love your wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church. And that's sort of the bottom line here. Now I know that this stirs up all kinds of additional questions on marriage and divorce. I'd love to actually take the full hour and unpack all that. I simply don't have time to do it. Uh, You can certainly email your questions to rbramlett at tpcc.org. No, no, I'm not trying to get out of it. I I am trying to say simply this, like in, in all seriousness, Jesus is saying this, hey, it is a beautiful thing when marriages are saved, cultivated and thrive. But in the event that they cannot be, then you better honor each other. There can be redemption and restoration by God's grace. All right, still with me? (laughs) Barely, all right, barely. All right, so I know this is dense. It's gonna get heavier because we're gonna talk about lying now. All right, so verse 33, he goes, you have also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Now, I know Jesus just talked about divorce. He's not talking about marriage vows. He's actually talking about oaths. And if you're anything at all like me, you're like, finally, you know, Jesus is talking about something that I'm not terrible at. I don't recall making any oaths this last week. And uh, if that's you, I just want to snuff out that little bit of hope that you might have in your spirit because Jesus is going to, pin us down on this. Actually, like one scholar uh, wrote that this is one of the most neglected sections in all the sermon, but it can be one of the most catalytic for our lives and relationships. So Jesus is talking about the impact of our words, right? Now, not curse words and not insults, but the integrity of our word. Meaning, am I the kind of person that can be trusted? Now, Clearly, this is a big deal for us today, but it was especially a big deal for them then because they lived in an oral culture, meaning the entire culture revolved around language. So they didn't have um, uh, any signatures, legal documents, power of attorneys, or bank statements. 
Most business deals during this time were done um, verbally between two people. So keeping your word was massively important. And the well-being of the community was really built on everyone's trustworthiness. Now today, I mean, it's the same thing. Like we, we all need to be trustworthy. But we, you know, sort of have things to keep us in check. We have uh, paper trails and email chains and legal documents just to kind of keep everybody honest. But they didn't have any of that then. It was their, your word against theirs. And this is where an oath came into play. And an oath was their way to sort of formalize this. It meant to verify or give credibility to one's claim of the truth. They were the system installed to dismantle the cycle of lying. So the one making an oath was really inviting the right to be judged and held accountable. And this is a really, really big deal because if you went back on your word in any way, like if you didn't follow through, it would cost you your life. And there was a real gravity to this. So Jesus comes along and he actually says like, hey, in my kingdom, don't even swear an oath at all. Like just be totally done with it. And this is a shift in Jesus' teaching. If you've been tracking with us, uh, so far when Jesus has talked about anger and lust and divorce, he's kept the heart of the command without doing away with it altogether. But here when he gets to oaths, he just says, do away with the whole command altogether. Now he's not scrapping the scripture. In reality, he's turning up the volume. And Jesus knew that an oath was not evidence of a changed heart. Like you could swear or make an oath and that could just be lip service and it would still conceal the inner motives of your heart. Like um, you could still be manipulative. Like you could still say things, you could make an oath and it'd still be laced with white lies, embellishments or omissions. What Jesus is after is like true integrity and he's after an authenticity, which means that we no longer have to swear, make oaths, or manipulate. Now, it's easy to excuse ourselves from this section of Scripture because we don't use the language of oaths and vows, but this has huge implications for us. Here's what I mean. Um, we live in a culture where we invoke the name of God to damn something or someone. We uh, swear to God on a stack of Bibles in our mama's grave to convince others we're telling the truth. And it's largely considered like harmless. Every single one of us have experienced people who promised us something and then broke their promise. They, they didn't uphold their commitment. They broke a contract to us. They told us one thing and did another. Even it's as simple as they set up a coffee meeting with us and then they were a no-show. All of us have given the impression that we were better than we really are. I think the Greek word is Instagram. And it's, we've just sort of like, we just sort of manipulate others' view of us through like 27 filters and four different camera angles to try to look good. And so Jesus is talking about manipulation here. He's talking about being less than authentic. And he goes on and he says in verse 34, hey, do not say, in other words, he's like saying, don't swear by heaven because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying? Well, in the first century, like um, uh, oaths were a big deal. Swearing was a big deal. And they were uncomfortable swearing by God's name because they were like, that's too much for me. And so they were like, well, let me swear by something less smiteable. All right. And so well, I'm going to swear by heaven. 
or I'll swear, swear by the earth. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're not, you're not evading God's judgment because the heaven is, heaven is where his kingdom is and the earth is his footstool and Jerusalem is his city and your head, like he created your body. So you're not getting out of this. He's talking about the integrity of our word. And so what do we do? And Jesus says in verse 37, just say a simple, yes, I will. And you know what? If you can't do it, say, no, I won't to all the people pleasers in the room. And then he says, anything beyond this is from the evil one. He's saying any form of deception is from the enemy. We, we learned this back in our series in Romans that uh, Satan is a deceiver and a liar. And behind all lying is a form of manipulation. Now, just think about all the ways that we manipulate. And I got to be honest with you, like I manipulate and I don't even know that I'm doing it. So like uh, one form of manipulation is pouting, right? And then we grow up and we go to another form of manipulation, which is passive aggression. Uh, we exaggerate. We leave out details. We embellish the story. We make ourselves the hero of every interaction. We slightly change the details or the tone of a conversation. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten into an argument with, uh, let's just say, a coworker? And then you go home and you're replaying it for your spouse or your roommate. And you just, you get the basics of the story right, but you change the tone to make them look worse than they really are. And you look better than you really are. Or is that just me? <laughs> All of us are in trouble, man. Like I'm in trouble. And I just gotta be honest with you. Like, um, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Enneagram. If you're not, it's not that important, but it just kind of like, kind of shows you like how you see the world and how you interact with others. And uh, I uh, am an Enneagram three, which is just an achiever or um, a performer. And there's like good parts of that and bad parts of that. Like you, if you're healthy, that's good. If you're unhealthy, that's, that's bad. But what that primarily means for me is like, if I'm unhealthy in that space, um, I'm just gonna confess to you, it is all, if some of you can relate to me, it is always a temptation for me to embellish a little. It is always a temptation for me to omit the ugly or to conceal the unflattering. It is always a temptation for me to change the size of the dragon that I've slayed. But enough about me, let's talk about you, all right? Um, and some of you are like, well, Aaron, you're our pastor. Like, yeah, I'm married to a woman who keeps me in check, all right? And she keeps me honest. And I've got four amazing bright kids who listen to every sermon. They're here right now. And if I say something that's embellished, they'll know it and they'll call me on it. All right. So thank God for them. All right. So, so, but enough about me, let's talk about you. All right. So what about you? And, and just for you, like, where are you tempted to manipulate? That's the question. Where, where are you tempted to maybe shade the truth a little bit or to maybe be a little bit passive aggressive? Or maybe for many of you, like, have you ever like just withheld the last 10% that you really need to say in a conversation and somebody really needs to know the truth and they really need to hear the truth and you're like, well, I don't wanna be mean. Understand this though, honesty is kindness. Honesty is kindness. Now you can be mean, uh, or unkind in the way you deliver uh, honesty. But honesty at the end of the day is kindness. And when we lie, when we shade the truth, when we're keeping people from the freedom that is found in Jesus, like we need to begin seeing it that way. And that's a big, big deal. In fact, in John chapter eight, Jesus said, and you'll know the truth and the truth will, will what? Like that'll set you free. 
At the, the bottom line here is Jesus is calling his followers to be people of integrity, which means that there is no room for deception or manipulation. Now, when we do it, we need to own it. And you, that means you actually circle back around and go, hey, you know what? Like I wasn't entirely truthful there or I embellished a little bit. And there's something refreshing about that type of authenticity. So if you're taking notes, like what are the takeaways for us? Well, can I just say, like, let's be truth tellers. Just, just tell the truth. Now it sounds simple, but it takes work because we have turned the curation of our lives into an art form, but we need to genuinely be honest. And basically that means like, hey, say, hey man, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have all the answers. I still struggle. I'm a work in progress. Here's the second thing. We need to do what we say we'll do, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. This is so important. We need to be, here's how you change the gravity of the room. Be the most trustworthy person in the room. Be the most trustworthy student, teammate, roommate, business partner, coworker, boss, employee, and friend that you can be. Like when you say you're gonna do something, do it. When you say you're gonna show up, show up. And we gut the gospel when we declare that we're a Christian, but then we don't keep our commitments. Um, this was so real for me uh, uh, earlier last year. I have a um, standing meeting in, on my calendar uh, about twice a month with uh, Ryan Bramlett, our teaching pastor. And it, there's no agenda, which is like a touch base. How you doing? How's the family? Uh, anything I can do for you? Just that relational touch. And um, because there's no agenda, I kind of began to slip into this mode where if I had something else going on, it became an easy meeting for me to miss. And I'd missed a couple of them. And one afternoon I was out uh, running some errands and I get a phone call from Ryan and it was kind of unusual. He usually texts me, he doesn't ever call. And he called and he was like, hey man, uh, where are you at? And I was like, I'm in the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A. And uh, he's like, well, like we had a meeting today. And I was like, oh man, dude, sorry. You know, slipped my mind. Like uh, I just figured like if there's anything you wanted to talk about, like you'd hit me up. And then the next thing he said was, hey man, like that's the third time that we've had a meeting scheduled and you didn't show up. And honestly, like it's not cool. And man, I gotta tell you in that moment, number one, I was so um, grateful for his honesty, but the carnal side, like my first reaction was defensiveness. And I wanted to say to him, well, like why do you keep missing appointments with your barber, right? I mean, that's, that's, what, I, that's what I wanted to say. Like just being real, like that's like the initial reaction. Hey, by the way, I like his hair, so y'all need to leave him alone, right? So, um, but then when I came to my senses and the Holy Spirit came back over me, I was like, hey man, like you're totally right. Like, and I'm, and I'm so sorry. Can, can I just ask you, are there ever any things in your, in your life where you're maybe not keeping a commitment? No big deal to you, big deal to other people. Uh, two more, and these are going to go much, much quicker. All right. Verse 38, he goes, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. Uh, by the way, that sentence is a bad translation. It doesn't mean you just roll over and become somebody's doormat. That's not what that means. He says, if somebody, also, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Now we read this command several times in the Torah. It's actually found in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. And Jesus is addressing this like sort of thing that is hardwired into all of us. Have you ever had... Uh, just, uh, have you ever noticed a little child, somebody walks up and hits a child with a toy. What's the child do? 
hits them back, right? Like this is just something that's like ingrained in all of us. And not only do we hit somebody back, we've got to one-up them. We've got to hit them harder because there is a little John Wick in all of us, right? We're just sort of like bent on revenge. We've got to get him back. And Jesus is basically making the point. He's not saying that we should just roll over and take it or be a doormat. He is saying that usually it, uh, when you do that, it just escalates the situation and you don't get anywhere. So Jesus is saying when somebody is unfair to you, and he offers some examples here, and it's always going to happen. You're going to have somebody treat you unfairly. He goes, you got a few options. You can fight them. You can flight them. Like you can just get out of there. Or Jesus says, what if there's a third option? Like what if there's sort of like a creative option that sort of surprises them and de-escalates the situation? What Jesus is doing here is he is suggesting creative ways to stop unfairness or even evil so that it doesn't escalate the situation. So the most common one we've heard of all of these is like, you know, slapping the right cheek. And maybe that's been taught in a variety of ways. And Jesus is not saying you should just let somebody beat you to a pulp. What he is saying is that maybe the most unexpected thing for somebody who did that is if you just turn the other cheek. And right there in that moment, they felt foolish for slapping you. I think the next one really gets at it. Uh, Jesus says, hey, if somebody sues you, if they take you to court to get your coat, give them your undergarment as well. Now, most of the, for most of us, that goes right over our head because we don't live in the first century. But honestly, there's no way for me to prove it. I think Jesus was being funny here. And the reason why I think that is because um, uh, this was long before the days of Calvin Klein, right? There was no underwear. There was just an undergarment. That's what Jesus is referring to. So you had this outer garment. It was like a coat and you would wear that. You also, it would double as a blanket at night. And Jesus says, um, if somebody is gonna, uh, let's just say they sue you to take that outer garment, which would have been a big deal. He goes, hey, why don't you just give them your tidy whities as well? <laughs> and he goes, just get, the, just get the, uh, uh, the visual here. You're standing in court and you strip down buck naked and you say, here, take it all. And he's like, they're going to go, oh man, put your clothes back on, right? It's, it's, like, it's going to like uh, totally deescalate the whole situation and they're going to feel foolish. He says the same thing. He goes, man, if a Roman soldier forces you to carry his gear for a mile, which was common during that day, and they despised it. You remember that when Jesus um, was uh, arrested and he was being crucified and he's marching up to Golgotha and he couldn't carry the crossbeam anymore, a Roman soldier asked somebody else to do it for him. This was very common. And Jesus says, hey, not only go a mile, but actually when, it, when you end the mile, um, go another one. And that is totally going to rock his world. He's going to go, who in the world am I dealing with? And he goes, maybe in the second mile, you could start up a conversation and you could ask them some questions about their life and how they got into Roman soldiering. And who knows where this might go? Jesus is saying all of this to lead into how he ends chapter five, which is loving our enemies, which is totally foreign to so many of us today. Check out what he says in verse 43. He goes, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. So Jesus is essentially saying, you wanna know how to stand out from the rest of the world in which so many of us are tempted to blend in. As he said, identify who your quote unquote enemy is and then build a bridge into their life and love them. 
Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying that we should condone all destructive behavior. He's certainly not saying that we should turn the other, uh, you know, eye, a blind eye to abuse or sex offenders or anything like that. He's just simply saying, who are the people that get on your nerves? Who are the people that you perceive as an enemy? Somebody who has a different political view than you, somebody who has a different view of some uh, social issues. We've got all kinds of things. Just take your pick of all the things that divide us today. And Jesus says, it's naturally for us like to just sort of uh, uh, gravitate to the people that see life the same way we do and love them. And he goes, but you're not any different than anyone else when you do that. He goes, if you really want to stand out, then figure out a way to love your enemies, which is exactly what Jesus came to do. See, understand this. We are never more like Jesus than when we love our enemies. You are never more Christ-like than when you are building bridges into the lives of people that you perceive as enemies. And Jesus did this throughout his whole ministry. Now we always see Jesus like um, approaching sinners, like people that uh, were nothing like Jesus, like they really liked him. And he would build bridges into their life. And we see him like inviting himself over to dinner at a tax collector's house, which was one of the most despised groups of people in the first century. And we see him stopping at a well in Samaria and talking to a Samaritan woman, which was totally taboo during that time. And we read that through our lenses and we're like, Jesus, that is so punk rock. Jesus, that's amazing that you're doing that because we have no emotional connection to tax collectors and Samaritans. But think about somebody you have an emotional reaction to. What if you read that passage and it said that Jesus had a meal at um, one of the leaders of ISIS at their house? Then how would you feel? What if Jesus sat down with the head of Antifa or QAnon? Or what if Jesus sat down with the head of whatever political party you despise? And all of a sudden we get this emotional reaction from it. And Jesus would reach out and have a meal with a perceived enemy. And he would say, you are never more like me than when you genuinely love the people that you have a hard time with. Uh, I was so convicted of this several years ago. Uh, I was uh, traveling with a couple people from our staff uh, we went over to Europe to meet with the gathering of uh, seminary students, church planners, and pastors. Uh, and the gathering was in Poland. And we had a um, layover in London for about 24 hours. And so we uh, took the tube to downtown London and we went to a little cafe for lunch. And while we were sitting in there, there was a man in the corner of the cafe by himself reading a newspaper, having uh, a latte or something. And one of the guys on our staff recognized him. He's like, hey, I think that's such and such. I won't say his name, but some of you might recognize it. He's a, a well-known uh, TV preacher, uh, not from the States, but from another country. And he's one of those guys that's like, um, I honestly like have a lot of disagreements with, and I think he kind of gives the rest of us a bad name, right? Like that kind of a person, like you can just imagine. And I was sitting there going, um, yeah, I don't want to talk to him. And one of the guys from our table got up and he went over and introduced himself and said, hey, by the way, like, are you such and such? And he confirmed that he was. And he came back over and he goes, yeah, that's him. And I was like, yeah, I'm still not going over and talking to him. And um, uh, he gets up after he finishes his latte and comes over to our table. And he sits down and he was totally not who I thought he was. Like he was so nice and so genuine. And he didn't want to talk about himself. He wanted to, he has had all kinds of questions for us. Like, tell me about your church and what are you guys doing over here? And, and I hated every minute of it. Because he was so nice, right? And I was just like, all right. You know, I was like wanting to go John Wick and he was Mr. Rogers. And it was just like, and so the whole time, like, like the Holy Spirit's like convicting me, like, Brockett, what is your problem? And uh, afterwards, like he, he gets done, says, hey, very nice to meet you guys, leaves. And the waiter comes over. We're like, hey, we're ready for the check. And he goes, yeah, he took care of it. And I was like, Duh! you know, and uh, 
And it was just this like conviction of like, man, like if I only love or like people like me, you know, people from my nation or people from my ethnicity or people from my socioeconomic status or my political party or my denomination or my particular music style or fashions, then I'm no better than a corrupt tax collector. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's perpetuating the tribalism that has wreaked havoc on society for thousands of years in particular right now. Glenn Staffison from Fuller Theological Seminary. Sorry to squelch the clap. All right. Uh, Glenn Staffson from Fuller Theological Seminary said this. He goes, loving only those who love you is the in-group selfishness of cliquishness. Cronyism, nepotism, racism, nationalism. If we only love those who love us, we see only an in-group perspective that become closed-minded to how others see things. As a result, we cannot understand our enemies' perspectives enough to deal with them effectively. So here's how Jesus wraps that up. Verse 48, he says, but... You are to be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. So there's that. (laughs) And I don't know about you, man, I read that. And that's where I just feel like, Jesus, that's ridiculous. Like you've set the bar so high. There's no way I'm ever going to scale that. But understand, once again, what he's saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying that you need to literally be perfect. He's ending a um, conversation around loving enemies And then that word perfect can be translated uh, in a couple of ways in the original languages. One of the ways that Luke translates that word uh, is the word merciful. So in other words, he goes, hey, be merciful even as your heavenly father is merciful. Like that makes a lot of sense. But But in the Greek, it's the word teleos. And the word teleos just means complete. So in other words, he goes, hey, be complete. Be mature as your father in heaven is mature. That changes things just a little bit. In other words, understand what Jesus is saying. He goes, hey, if you ever wanted to give yourself a grade, spiritually speaking, like you ever want to know, like, hey, where am I at in my process of spiritual growth and maturity? It really has nothing to do with how much Bible you know. Doesn't have anything to do with how many good deeds you do, how often in church you are, or how much you give. Jesus says, you want to know the mark of a spiritually mature person? It's the way you treat your enemies. If you've ever wanted to know where you are in your spiritual journey, it is directly correlated to the way you love people that you don't think you can stand. That is super convicting. And some of us might be like, well, can that even be done? Is that even realistic? And I would say yes, because we are all, you and I, living proof of it. We check check this out in, in the book of Romans. It says, now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God in his kingdom showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. When? While we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his Say it with me. Enemies. Yeah. We're not just mistakers in need of a life coach. We're sinners in need of a savior. Our sin made us enemies of God. And going on, he says, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us. Now say this with me. Friends. Yeah. Friends of God. That, that right there is the gospel. We were enemies by our sin and rebellion. God made us friends. He made the first move towards us. And so he says, 
we should have that disposition towards others. I would even go as far as to say, if we refuse not to be, we've got to really stop and ask ourselves if we've really received that. Because that's what changes us at a very heart level. This has all kinds of implications for us today. Um, by the way that we present ourselves online, by the way that we present ourselves at work, by the way that we treat even our own family members. This is all driving down towards the motivations of our heart. And so right now, I just want you to know that if you uh, have never crossed that line from enemy of God to friend of God, you can do that right now today. Like the Bible just simply teaches, like just recognize that you're a sinner in need of his grace and you call upon the Lord to save you from that. And you begin this relationship as a friend of God. And if you're ready to do that today, across all of our locations, maybe you're watching online in another state, you can do that right now. In fact, let me just lead us through this prayer together to do that. Lord God, we uh, come to you right now and we're so grateful for the Sermon on the Mount, but it's hard. It's hard sometimes to understand uh, through our modern day lens. It's hard sometimes to understand what exactly you mean by what you say, but God, we know that you're actually uh, describing your kingdom. The way this world was meant to be before sin tainted it. And so we wanna strive to bring a little bit of up there down here by the way that we live out our lives, by the way that we love, by the way that we honor our spouse, by the way that we love our enemies, by the integrity of our word. And so Father, I pray today that if there's anybody here who desires to cross that line from enemy to friend of God, that they could receive it today, that they would just simply recognize right where they're seated, that they can receive that gift of your grace to recognize that you were the one that made the first move towards them. Right now, as we see that the way that society tries to deal with interpersonal conflict, it is not working. We need a kingdom way, we need a better way. And Jesus died for us to have it. And so right now today, I ask that you would, we just wanna spend these remaining moments together, just offering our heart, allowing your spirit to do a little bit of soul searching, a little bit of surgery within us to change us from the inside out. Thank you for showing us a whole new way to be human. And give us the strength and the courage to pursue it. And by your name, we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.